The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. So this is week two of our four-week series on the book of Jonah. It's a short book, not even two pages in my Bible. By the end of these four weeks, we will have covered every single word of the book. Uh, how about that? We will be master theologians of Jonah. Well, last week, Ryan Church kicked us off with chapter one. Uh, he hit on the fear of failure and how the fear has the power to stop us from even starting. We were introduced to the person of Jonah and learned a lot about him as we examined his response to a specific task that God had asked him to do. We saw last week that the first two verses of chapter 1 explain that task. And they were the first two verses of chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Go to Nineveh and preach. That's what was, that, that's, that was Jonah's homework given to him by the Lord in the beginning of chapter 1. And Jonah did not do his homework. He did not do his homework. Uh, he did not even start doing it. Instead, he made it his goal to get as far away as possible from Nineveh and from the Lord. So he traveled to a town called Joppa, a port town, and bought a ticket to Tarshish by boat. Let's take a look for a second at a map of, uh, of where these cities are. So between Nineveh and Joppa is a town called Geth Hefer. That's where Jonah was from. And God called him to go to Nineveh. Instead of going to Nineveh, he went the opposite direction to Joppa, bought that ticket to go to Tarshish by boat. So right now, he's on a boat in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, during the sea voyage to Tarshish, a storm hit. Jonah then told the other sailors on the boat that the storm was probably his fault because he was running away from God, the God of heaven and earth. The sailors thought, well, that's probably the reason why there's a storm. Uh, for a little while, they tried really hard to row against the storm back to land, but it didn't work. Finally, Jonah just told them that the only way to calm the storm would likely be to throw him overboard. Throw me overboard, he said. So at his request, the sailors did. They threw him overboard. The sailors continued on their journey to Tarshish as Jonah was sinking to the bottom of the ocean. Then we read the last verse of chapter 1. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. No, no. Way. Are you serious? Was he actually swallowed? I think this is the question. These questions uh, are common. I think this question always comes out when we think of Jonah. And I want to be up front and say that I'm not going to end up convincing us by the end of this talk that either yes, it did happen, or no, it did not happen. What I would like to do, though, is look at how each side might defend their stance. One side states that the book of Jonah took place in history, that is historical. And the other side states that it's not historical, but rather a story that uses figurative language. 
And remember, figurative language in the Bible should not be a scary thing to us. Jesus used figurative language at times. In John 15, he compared himself to a vine and us to his branches. Jesus, he did not think we were actually branches. He did not think that he was actually a vine. He was using figurative language um, to, to make a point. He was using a metaphor to make a point. Uh, so the question becomes, the book of Jonah, historical or metaphorical? Those who believe this story to be historical, to have actually happened in history, would point to some passages outside of the book of Jonah to start defending their claim. They would open up to a book called Second Kings, and they would show us passages that give more information about Jonah and passages that include him in narratives with other historical figures, people who actually existed. We would also probably hear about the cities that are mentioned in the Jonah story. Tarshish, Joppa, Nineveh. We can point to all those places on a map today. The names of the towns may be different, but we know because of archaeological uh, findings where those cities are. Um, and lastly, these people trying to prove the point that, that Jonah is historical, they'd point us to something that Jesus said. In the book of Matthew, which is one of the four gospel books, uh, Jesus said, for as, or for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Why would Jesus compare himself to a guy that didn't exist, is what they would ask us. And then we have the other side. Those who believe the story to be metaphorical, a story that, God's, that God can speak through, through to us, yes, but a story that did not actually happen. Uh, and to defend their claim, most would point to the unlikeliness of having a man inside of a fish alive for 72 hours. They would say it didn't happen because uh, of how difficult it would be for a man to be swallowed by a fish or how difficult it would be for a man to, to survive 72 hours in a stomach without being chemically broken down by the fish's stomach acid. Yeah, people are thinking very logically about this. Um, Obviously, these, what I just said, those are only a few of their defenses. There are a lot more that each side would use to efficiently try to prove their point. And I don't think, I don't think there will come a time when we can say that we figured it out, that we know the answer. But in all of this debate, there lies a problem we focus more on Jonah's fish than on Jonah's God. We get caught up in this game of thinking that there's a correct side to take concerning the historicity of Jonah. Trying to figure out whether he was actually in the fish for three days or not has become more important to us uh, than trying to understand what God's message is for us in this text. Don't get me wrong. I think it's important to know, to solidify our understanding of the Bible in all aspects uh, in fact, we're called to do that. But I think some of us have waded a little too far from land in trying to figure out the answer. We have to remember that whether we see it as a metaphor or as a historical event, the message, the theme, the takeaway that God has for us in Jonah chapter 2 is still the same. The message, the theme, the takeaway, it wouldn't change. The message would not change. And so now, let's take a look at the text. Verse 1. 
Try to figure out what the message is. Um, and we begin in Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountain, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you... Lord God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Verse 2. Jonah says, from deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Jonah was rescued by the Lord who listened to his cries. But rescue isn't always clean and tidy. One thing this text tells us is that it can be messy, too. As he was sinking to the bottom, to the roots of the mountain, as seaweed began to wrap around his head, a marine animal opened its mouth and gobbled him up. And in that moment, sitting in the stomach of a fish, days after he failed to obey God when he was told to go preach in Nineveh, hours after he failed to arrive in Tarshish, the furthest place away from the Lord he believed he could have gone, minutes after he failed to die, jumping overboard into the Mediterranean Sea, and now seconds after he arrives into this unimaginably gloomy and downtrodden emotional state, After all of these things, in this messy, gooey stomach of a fish, I think Jonah remembered where his true identity was. He prayed to the Lord. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, Salvation comes from the Lord. This is a turning point for Jonah's understanding of God's influence in his life. He remembered that his identity was in the Lord and not in the failures he recently committed. He gives them no power over himself. He doesn't sulk. He doesn't pout. He prays and promises to to make good what he vowed to the Lord. After I realized this, I asked myself, when was the last time I failed? And how did I respond? And so I thought, and I realized that I fail continuously. I fail every single day. I fail to regard others before myself. I fail to acknowledge that I do that. I fail in relationships with my family, with my friends. I fail to give each day to the Lord. 
I fail within the context of my job in so many other ways. Do you fail where I fail? What, which of your failures do you define, define yourself with? I think we all know that at some point in our lives, we have failed at something. Just like Jonah, the prophet, the guy God speaks through. But I think the important question is how, did, how you responded. When I was young, I remember using the juicer. It didn't get much use in our house, so it was always at the very back of the appliance drawer. I'd open up the drawer. First thing I saw was the toaster. We always used the toaster. I pulled out some other kitchen electronics, and then I found the juicer. So my experiences with the juicer were great. Um, <laughs> you guys don't even know. Uh, despite its little use, I remember my experiences using it. We'd gather the fruit, apples, many apples, a banana, pineapples. If we had some grapes, we'd grab those. Any types of berry had to be included. Uh, so we'd put all the fruit on the cutting board, ready to be dropped into the spinning blade with holes in it. But before we started, there always was another ingredient. Carrots. <laughs> Little baby orange carrots. Mom or dad or babysitter, it seemed like whoever was monitoring us at that moment thought it was a great idea that carrots would be put in. They thought, it, they, thought it, they would add some type of value to our juice. <laughs> I was not a fan. So the food uh, was gathered, and as we started pushing all our ingredients through the machine, I always wanted to observe the juice trickling down from the, from the machine. Here we go. I always wanted to observe the juice trickling down from the, sh the machine into the clear container that housed it before it was poured into our cups. I would watch for the layers of color that developed in the container. The apple would turn into a greenish gold juice. Once the apples were juiced, we'd start juicing the berries, and a new color of juice would fall on top of that, kind of like this. I don't know what, what juice this is, but... <laughs> Uh, the point of this picture is just to show you that there are layers that develop when you use a juicer. Um, and yeah, and because by the time we had finished putting all the food in, we had not shaken that container that all the juice was coming to, um, you could see all the different layers of juice stacked on top of each other. The bright orange liquid was impossible to miss amidst all the layers of color inside the container. I saw that orange carrot juice I saw that orange carrot juice and wanted nothing to do with our homemade product. <laughs> One second. Uh, yeah, even though, even though there was plenty of great tasting ingredients, that layer of carrot juice defined the whole drink to me. I saw the carrots as the identity of that juice. And so I would say, no thank you. I would not like carrot juice this afternoon. Um, even though it wasn't carrot juice. Carrots were only part of the whole. Right? Carrots were only part of the whole. In a lot of ways, we look at that juice the same way we look at ourselves. 
we see inside of us that layer of failure. That's all we see. We see that layer of carrot juice and think that it defines us, all of who we are. And we say, no thank you to ourselves. We say, no thank you to ourselves. God, when he sees that juice, he's like, give me two glasses. I want 100% of every part of that juice, every single layer of it, even if it's orange. (laughs) We see our failures when we think of ourselves. God does not. He knows that we have them now and that we'll always have them, but he doesn't care about how much carrot juice is inside of us, right? What did he do to Jonah? He rescued him despite his tragic failures. And now, as we think about the question posed before the juicer story, how do you respond to your failure? Remember Jonah when answering that question. At his lowest point, after committing tragic failures, he responded by starting. He didn't wait till he was feeling in the mood or until there were candles lit or calm music playing. He started worshiping in the messiness of a fish's stomach. He bowed his head and praised God because he knew that although he did failure, fail, he is not a failure. Although he did fail, he is not a failure. He's, the, he's Jonah, the guy loved by God. I'm not Ryan, the guy who is the selfish guy. I'm Ryan, the guy loved by God. You're not Jennifer, the girl who didn't get into the business school or the nursing school or the mechanical engineering school. You're Jennifer, the girl loved by God. You're not Max, the guy who drank too much last night. You're Max, the guy loved by God. You're not Cindy, the girl who can't get a job and who is giving her, who who thinks that she is someone who doesn't have a job and nothing else. She's Cindy, the girl loved by God. You guys, insert your name into any negative description you can think of. And now know that that's not you. You're God's child. And he desires to rescue you, to know you, and to live in you, regardless of what your failure may be. Let's pray. We are your children, God. And we thank you that you came down on the cross and gave us that opportunity. Remind us that we are not our failures, Lord. Our failures do not define us, even though that we will have them. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.